Well, if you would remain standing, we're going to be reading from John chapter 15, midway through John chapter 16 this morning. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to John 15, verse 18. We'll be reading through 1615. Let's stay standing for God's word this morning. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin, but now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, but that, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me where you are going. But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. This is God's word. You may be seated. Well, from what we know from early church historians... It paints a pretty bleak picture of what happened to the apostles after the book of Acts concludes. Early church historians tell us the apostle Thomas traveled to India, and he went there to tell people about this man that he had just spent the last three years with, whom he had seen crucified and dead on a cross, and then whom he had seen alive a few days later, and it touched Some people in India accepted that message, received it gladly, but many did not. And Thomas was speared to death because he was bearing witness about Jesus. 
Another apostle, Andrew, went to Greece with the same goal in mind to tell the people there about this this Savior named Jesus. He was crucified, as the story goes, on an X-shaped cross for bearing witness about Jesus. Jude was beaten to death for bearing witness about Jesus. James was beheaded by Herod for bearing witness about Jesus. Bartholomew was either flayed to death or crucified, depending on which story, but both of them agree it was for bearing witness about Jesus. Paul was beheaded for being a witness to what Jesus had done in his life. John's kind of the outlier here. He dies of old age, but he dies of old age while he's on exile on an island because he was bearing witness about Jesus. And we know from our story is that Peter, the apostle who was most sure that he would stay close to Jesus and then who betrayed Jesus like the rest, he was crucified as well, but he asked to be crucified upside down because he did not believe he was worthy to die the same death as his Savior for bearing witness about Jesus. It's an extraordinary list, isn't it? These are the men who are hearing Jesus say these words at the end of his life. These are, these are his disciples the apostles. Each of these men, I guess with the exception of Paul, Paul was not present for this, but each of these men were hearing Jesus say these things to him. And each of these men, in a few hours' time from when Jesus said these things, would run into the night scared when the mob came to arrest Jesus. Didn't even want to be associated with him. They were so afraid. So you might have heard the phrase that twice is a coincidence, three times is a pattern. So how is it that this many of these men This many of the disciples were so committed to their message, to this message that Jesus is the Savior of the world, that they went from men scared to even be associated with Jesus to being willing to be publicly beaten, mocked, and crucified, killed for bearing witness about Jesus. What could give this many human beings the confidence and the conviction to treat their lives so flippantly but hold on to their faith so dearly? Our passage today is going to answer that question. How is it that regular human beings, people like you and me, can have the confidence and conviction to follow Jesus through intense opposition and persecution? What Jesus is going to show us today is that if you are bearing witness about Jesus, if you're on mission with him, doing the work that Jesus was doing, the world's going to oppose you, but the helper is going to help you. Those are the two primary encouragements that I want us to take from this passage today. These two encouragements Jesus is giving to his disciples in this this passage. Those will be kind of our, our guiding points this morning. So first, when you're bearing witness about Jesus, you should expect opposition. And second, when you're bearing witness about Jesus, you should expect the helper's help. When you're bearing witness about Jesus, you can expect opposition and you can expect the helper's help. That's my hope today that we'll see how these men went from this group of of scared, scared men to giants of faith who will happily accept persecution and death for the name of their Savior. And I hope that you see today that you have that same help as well that those men had. So let's take a look at this first encouragement. When you're bearing witness about Jesus, you can expect opposition, which I, I recognize probably doesn't sound actually very encouraging, but I think we will be encouraged as we see what Jesus is saying here. So last week, Pastor Eric preached on Jesus' famous words to abide, Jesus telling his disciples and his followers to abide in him. 
And by abiding in him as a result of this, and the way that they do it, it kind of creates this environment within the church of increasing prayer and increasing love for one another. You can look back in chapter 15, verse 17. That's, that's the result of it. It's wonderful, right? Within the context of the church, as we abide in Jesus, our love for one another, our, our, our prayer should all be growing. But then Jesus gets to this passage today. Abiding in him, he says, is going to cause growth within the church, but when you get outside of the church, it's going to be a different story. So look back, if you've got your Bibles, down again at verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 18. Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It's a little less comforting than last week's passage. The world's going to hate you. And Jesus goes on to explain the reason in 20 and 21. Remember the word I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. I don't know if any of you have had the experience of wearing um, a jersey into the wrong part of the world or the wrong part of the United States, where you enter a place where that particular team is not welcomed, and people treat you poorly, even though you've done absolutely nothing to them. You've experienced that before. Um, it's kind of a similar thing that's going on here. That's what's happening to these guys. They're going to get kicked out of their communities, their synagogues, as Jesus says, later on in chapter 16. They're even going to be killed and not because people don't like them. It's because they don't like Jesus, the one that they're bearing witness about. Now, that's an important phrase, that phrase, bearing witness. You might have noticed it in, chat, in verse 27. <clears throat> Excuse me, it means giving evidence, right? Or giving kind of, it's kind of got like a courtroom idea. Like you're giving a testimony to what you've seen, eyewitness testimony. That's what Jesus is telling his disciples that they're going to do. They're going to give eyewitness testimony to people about who Jesus is and what he did for them. And that is when the hatred's going to come. Now that can be a really confusing thing when it happens. If it's ever happened to you, you know. This, is, this can be a confusing thing. I was actually just talking with someone this week who had shared a, a little bit about his faith with a family member. Um, Knowing, this, knowing this, this person, it was done very gently, very kindly about the ways that Jesus had been helping him. And this family member went absolutely nothing to do with it. In fact, went and told this guy's mom that, that uh, she hated him. That, those words. He shared about how he had been growing the blessings of peace and strength. And she said she hated him. It makes us wonder why, right? Why would somebody hate a family member for finding peace and forgiveness in Jesus. And Jesus says that hatred is ultimately about their relationship with him. It's not about their relationship with the disciple or the follower of Jesus. It's about their relationship with him. It's because the gospel at its core really is, is offensive. Right? Jesus claims to be Lord and Savior for anyone who follows him. Which means you are not fundamentally a good person. If Jesus has to save you, it means... <laughs> You need to be saved. You're not fundamentally good. You need a savior. It also means that God has a say in how you live your life. That's what it means that he's our Lord. So when one of our spiritual brothers or sisters here shares something about how Jesus has saved them and the ways that he's changing how they live, 
That is a, an offensive thing because in that witness, it's exposing the need for salvation and indicates to the person hearing it that God might not be okay with the way that they're living their life. And we've seen this kind of response a lot in John. If you've been with us as we've been going through the book of John, we've seen this over and over and over again, how Jesus' teaching and actions just draw this hatred from people. And it's often for doing things like healing people, raising a guy from the dead. Right? These religious leaders especially, they hate Jesus for these things. Because Jesus' life and words are pronouncing judgment on everyone. They pronounce judgment on everyone, but what they do is they offer salvation to those who are humbly willing to come to him for help. Now, Jesus is going to go on to say, if he hadn't come and spoken to these people, they would not have been guilty of sin. Did you notice that when we read that? They would not be guilty of sin. It's kind of an odd thing for Jesus to say. If you know your Bibles, you know that that, that is, is, we have to kind of understand how to fit that in with the rest of what Scripture says. We have other Scripture to help us here. For example, Romans 3, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, what does Jesus mean when he says this? They would not have been guilty of sin. Jesus is talking here about a particular kind of sin. The particular kind of sin of hearing God's word and making the decision to ignore it. Now, it's helpful to keep the disciples' situation in mind here. These, the people who had been primarily persecuting these disciples... Uh, were the religious leaders. So these were the scribes and the Pharisees. We've met them several times. They had listened to Jesus. Right? And maybe even to back up, these, these guys had the advantage of knowing God's word probably better than anyone else at that time. And then they had listened to Jesus' words. They had listened to his teaching. They had watched him perform these miracles. He'd even read their minds on a few occasions. And they decided to ignore what Jesus had to say about them that they were sinners that needed to be saved. Right? These men had every advantage, and they still chose to reject Jesus. And what Jesus says is, for that sin, there is no excuse whatsoever. I want to pause on this for a moment. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to talk to you briefly about what this passage is saying. If you've been hearing our series of John, you've been listening to Jesus listening to his words, hearing about his miracles, hearing his teachings, what Jesus is saying here is that you have no excuse for your sin. It's a scary statement. It's a frightening statement. It should frighten us. It's what Jesus says in verse 22, no excuse. I just want to ask you to please, please pay attention to that warning. Do not ignore what God is telling you. Everyone's a sinner. All of us here are sinners. Everyone in the world is a sinner fall short of God's glory. But those who have heard that Jesus is the Son of God, that he offers to save those who follow him, it's a different kind of judgment coming for those who have heard that. It's a different judgment. It's worse. So please heed Jesus' warning here. Now, if you're one of Jesus' disciples at this point, this is um, maybe not the kind of pep talk that you would expect right before Jesus leaves. Right? You can imagine the disciples maybe wondering, why are you telling us this right now? If these bad things are going to happen to us, why, why give us something to be worried about before it even happens? So Jesus tells them in chapter 16, one, verse 1, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. All right, he wants them and he wants us to recognize 
that the real danger that's coming to these men is not opposition and persecution. That's not the real danger. The real danger is falling away from Jesus when that persecution comes. That is a very, very important message for people in our context today because we live in a culture that is very obsessed with comfort and ease. And we live in a culture that's very comfortable with questioning God, questioning faith. So this is an important message for us to hear. We need to hear this. Jesus did not want his disciples to be caught off guard when opposition comes for being followers of Jesus, for bearing witness about him. All right, so he prepares them. If that friction comes, when the friction, there will be points of friction for Jesus' followers in this world. And when that friction comes, do not be surprised. And don't let those points of friction cause you to question your faith, question God, or maybe slowly start to slide backwards in your faith when it happens. Now this raises a question for us, and it's an important one, and it's this. Are you experiencing opposition or any points of friction with the world because you are talking about Jesus? I want us to keep in mind this friction, this hatred Jesus is talking about here, this is specifically in the context of the disciples bearing witness about Jesus. So what that means is they're, they're talking to people about Jesus. They're talking to him. They're talking to people about what Jesus has done for them. All right. Now for us, that could look like a lot of things. It could look like telling a family member about what Jesus has done for you in your life. It could look like awkward, uncomfortable conversations at Thanksgiving or at work. It could be all sorts of things. But Jesus' point is this. If you are regularly talking about Jesus and what he has done for you to people who aren't believers, then you should not be surprised when you receive some pushback. That friction is going to come. Now, it's worth a brief aside here. Uh, when Christians experience friction in the world, it doesn't always mean that you are faithfully bearing, faithfully bearing witness about how Jesus has saved you from your sin. Um, sometimes it's because Christians are just being mean. I used to live in Philadelphia for uh, about three years. I think I've told this story before, but um, there was a park right near where we lived, and these these this church and this one church in particular would come in from the suburbs. They'd bring all these horrible signs, all these bullhorns, and they would just scream obscene things at people about how they're going to hell. Uh, called them terrible names. And the goal, as uh, the rumor was, the goal was to get uh, a physical altercation, to have someone punch them that they could record and then make a big deal about how the, the church is being persecuted. <laughs> Which, to be perfectly frank, there were many times when I walked past them and I kind of wished someone would do that. They would have deserved it. I was glad they didn't. But um, In some cases, some of the things they were saying were actually true, but they were used so horribly, just as clubs, to beat people over the head. Right, there was no humility in what they were doing. This is not bearing witness about Jesus. Bearing witness means you have to tell people that I'm a sinner. Right? I needed to be saved. It's the, it's the, the tone of having uh, someone who's thirsty telling someone else who's thirsty, hey, I found water. Here's where you can go find it. Right? That is not at all what they were doing. The friction that they were experiencing is not the kind of friction Jesus is talking about here. Um, one other thing to mention here, not everyone here is going to have the gift of evangelism, all right? And that's okay. But all of us are called to be witnesses and to give true testimony to what Jesus has done for us. 
Now, on one hand, that might be comforting to realize uh, what Jesus is not saying is you need to be ready to kind of answer any sort of theological question that comes up when you're talking about him or to give any kind of like systematic theology. You just need to be ready to talk about what Jesus has done for you, right? to give a reason for the hope that you have within yourself. But on the other hand, you might be here sitting here thinking that the idea of opening your mouth and having anything about Jesus come out to a non-believer is terrifying. Right? Terrifying. Because none of us want to be rejected. None of us want to be embarrassed. Frankly, none of us really want to have an awkward conversation, even if there's no rejection involved. And I wish, I wish, wish we could say, you know, don't worry, it won't be all that bad. If you're reading the text here, as you see, Jesus is saying it actually might be much worse than what you could imagine. Now, if that's you today, if you're feeling that, that, that terror inside of you or that uncomfort, I just want to remind you of who is saying this to you. This is the man who chose to be betrayed and rejected because of his love for you. He could have totally avoided the shame and rejection that he experienced, but he didn't. Jesus chose to walk through those things because of how much he loves you. So if you are afraid of rejection for the sake of Jesus, just remember, Jesus knows what that is like. He knows what rejection is like, and he understands that it's hard. And so he's going to help you. That's going to take us to our second encouragement here today, to expect the helper's help. So we're coming just to revisit the disciples again here, what they, they might have been experiencing. Uh, Jesus has just told them the world's going to hate them. He's gonna th- they're going to throw them out of their, their worship communities, their synagogues. Uh, the world might actually think it's doing a moral thing by killing them. And Jesus says, I'm leaving. But he tells them, I'm not leaving you alone. I'm going to send you a helper. And that, he says in verse 7, is actually going to be to the disciples' advantage. Uh, when George Washington gave his uh, farewell address after serving as president, our first president of the United States, it was this, this pretty significant moment for the future of democracy, the future of the United States, because it was a man choosing to voluntarily give up power, and choosing to limit how much time he would spend in office. But not everybody was happy about this. Uh, a few years after his address, this man named Jonathan Trumbull Jr., who was the governor of Connecticut at the time, he wrote uh, a letter with the goal of helping rec- Washington recognize, we actually need you to come back. We need you to come be president again. So listen to how he finishes his letter to Washington here. <clears throat> need I apologize to you, sir, for this hint? Or shall I frankly tell you that this idea is not vaguely started by me, but is strongly prompted by the necessity of our situation and may probably be pursued in earnest. For unless some eminently prominent character should be brought up on view of this occasion, the next election of president, I fear, will have a very ill-fated issue. So if you could follow that, what Trumbull is saying is, we need you, Washington. We need you. We need you to come back and be president again. The country's not going to manage if you don't come back. And some people actually wanted Washington to come back and be king. But what Trumbull didn't recognize is that at that time, what Washington was doing by leaving the presidency is he was creating a new expectation and system of government that would protect against monarchy and and individuals seeking power for centuries. And had he stayed, he might have been able to help the U.S. for a brief time, but he was only one man, 
in one place who could only live a certain number of years, his exit was going to be far more transformative than him staying. Jesus is going to do something similar here for the disciples. He's going to leave them, but he's going to send the helper. He's talking here about the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says it's actually better that he go away and send the helper to them, which ought to sound a little wild to you. It ought to sound wild. What, what Jesus is saying is that all of us here, if you're a follower of Jesus, if, right now, if you're sitting in, in the pews here, you're in a better position than the disciples who are sitting around the table with Jesus, who could ask him whatever they wanted to ask him. You are in a, it is to your advantage that you live now with the help of the Holy Spirit. That should be a huge encouragement can wrap our minds around that. So I want to spend a few minutes this morning looking at what this passage has to say about the helper, the Holy Spirit. Because if it's better for us that the helper is with us than Jesus physically here himself, then it's worth some time to hear why Jesus would say that. So I want to look at what Jesus has to say about the helper. Right off the bat, Jesus calls him the, the helper. All right, that's, that's the term he gives him, or advocate or counselor, or other ways you could translate that. I think it's wonderful that God gives himself names that show how the different persons of the Trinity relate to us. Like God the Father, God the Son, or Emmanuel, the one, the, the God with us. And here he calls the Holy Spirit the helper, which helps us know <laughs> the Holy Spirit is here to help us. All right, next, Jesus is sending us the Holy Spirit. Now, this is um, actually an important distinctive of our faith, that we believe the Holy Spirit comes both from the Father and from the Son, or proceeds from the Father and the Son. And this was the cause of a major split many years ago in the church, thousand, over a thousand, about a thousand years ago. Um, we believe that the, the Holy Spirit comes both from the Father and from the Son. And why that's important is because in the work of salvation, what God is doing is he is drawing people to salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the Holy Spirit, Jesus is sending the Spirit. It's also part of how we can understand that we are, uh, we can say Jesus is with us. When Jesus promises to be with his disciples when he leaves them, at the end of Matthew, saying, I will be with you. That's how we know that this is true. Jesus is with us by his Spirit. So when, when we are on mission with Jesus, we know that, the, that Jesus is going to be with us by his Spirit. And then Jesus has a lot to say about here, about what the Spirit is going to do. And now these are important. Um, and there is a ton that we could talk about from what the Holy Spirit does. We're going to limit ourselves to what it says in this passage about what the Holy Spirit is going to do. Uh, and the main thread, if you can be listening for this as, as we read, I want you to be watching for this. How the Holy Spirit is continuing the work that Jesus was doing when he was here on earth. How the Holy Spirit is continuing Jesus' mission. And as we'll see, doing it through you. So look down, verse 26 and 27, if you've got your Bibles. The helper is bearing witness about Jesus. And he's giving power to our witness. There's this kind of synergy that goes on between the Holy Spirit opening people's eyes to understand who Jesus is and then our own witness about what Jesus has done for us. That's happening right now. Jesus isn't physically here on earth, but the Spirit is witnessing to the world through the work of the church. Same idea in verse 14, that the Helper is glorifying Jesus. All right, next, the Holy Spirit's going to guide the disciples in all truth. That's in verse 13. I'm sure these disciples felt like there was a whole lot that they still wanted to ask Jesus when he was about to leave. Right? Uh, if he's going to leave, 
They aren't going to be able to ask him any more questions. What Jesus is saying is the Spirit is going to come to give them understanding, to guide them in truth. That's the same for us today. The Spirit guides us in truth as we read Scripture, as we, as we, as we come together to hear Scripture preached. This book, this book of John in our Bible was written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we, as, as, as his people, are guided by the Holy Spirit in truth as we read God's Word that was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And I hope that gives you confidence as you read the Bible um, to know that the Holy Spirit is with you and he is guiding you in truth. It has to be done in community and, and carefully and, and with the help of, of many, many years of, of other Christians reading Scripture to understand what it means. But the Holy Spirit is guiding us in truth as we come to his word. And this is the last one we'll look at, the works of the helper in this passage. That the Holy Spirit is going to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Verses 8 through 11. Now, if you were reading this uh, with us uh, earlier, or if you read this ahead of time, this, this is a, a bit of a confusing section. Right? This, this is a little tricky what Jesus is trying to say here. Jesus says the Spirit's going to convict the world concerning sin, because they don't believe in him, concerning righteousness, because Jesus is going to the Father and won't be, uh, won't be seen anymore, and then concerning judgment, since the ruler of the world, or Satan, is judged. There are a few interpretations of what Jesus is trying to say here, or what Jesus means. But what I believe is the most faithful explanation is that Jesus is saying that the Spirit is going to continue what Jesus was doing in these three categories. Jesus was here to convict this, the world of sin. He was here to convict the world of their righteousness and judgment. All right, so what that means is the Holy Spirit is both convicting us of sin, yes, but also what the Holy Spirit is doing is he's helping us recognize that our categories or the world's categories of sin and righteousness and judgment aren't correct. Right? The world still has those categories of sin, righteousness, and judgment, but they aren't the same as, as, as the Lord's. Right? Um, the world around us might use different words to talk about sin, righteousness, and judgment, but the world, every worldview, every worldview has some concept of a sin, righteousness, and judgment, right? So if you imagine... Uh, every worldview is going to have behaviors that it condemns. That's the sin. Right? Every worldview is going to have behaviors that it approves of. That's how you are righteous. And then every worldview is going to judge people based on how they behave according to those categories. But one thing that's very consistent with these worldviews is that, is that the weight of staying righteous or being righteous all lands on you. Right? It's all in the person to avoid the sins and do the things that make you righteous, to do the, do the good behaviors and not do the bad ones. So, for example, there may be people here who have grown up in, in very uh, graceless, um, gospel-less, legalistic church cultures. Right? And you may have uh, grown up in a place where there was this heavy emphasis on maintaining certain behaviors that, that looked good, that looked like you were living a good life, but no sense that uh, your righteousness actually comes from somebody else. On the other side, on the, on, the, on the secular side, in a secular environment, uh, the sin might be holding a viewpoint that would be considered bigoted or um, on the wrong side of history. And righteousness can be had by, by uh, being an activist or being committed to the right causes. Right? Judgment is then being um, embarrassed or shamed, or the word that gets used a lot now is canceled for not, being, not living according to those sins or, that, or into that righteousness. But in either case, whether it's kind of the graceless religious experience or the graceless secular experience, the weight of staying righteous is all on you. 
It's all in your behavior. You better behave. The Holy Spirit is at work to expose those categories as false and burdensome, very burdensome, and to show how in Jesus there are entirely different definitions of sin and righteousness and judgment. Friends, I think this is one place where our witness, where we can bear witness about Jesus, can have a very, very helpful and powerful impact on people. Because being responsible for your righteousness is a, it's an enormous burden to carry. Having to make sure that your behaviors and your words and your actions all stay appropriate, that is a huge, huge burden. But Jesus comes, and he's going to transform these categories, and he's going to start uh, by saying, you're, you're much worse than you realize. Right? You, can't avoid not being a, you can't avoid being a sinner. You are, you are a sinner. Your sin's much worse than you realize. Whether you're committed to the right causes or not, whether you behave the right way or not, it doesn't matter. You're a wicked sinner. And all the stuff that you think is best about you, the stuff that you think makes you righteous, that's like a bloody washcloth. It's gross. It's worthless. But then Jesus does something extraordinary. He says that you can be righteous in God's view if you admit that you're a sinner, humbly recognize that you need help, ask for God's forgiveness, and then follow and obey Jesus. And then the judgment is this. God gives you Jesus' righteousness. He says, I'm going to treat you like Jesus because I treated Jesus like I should have treated you. You see how freeing that would be to someone who's, who's living their life thinking they have to maintain their behaviors to live a sinless life. Our family and our friends and our neighbors who care about being good and who don't know what it's like to have this forgiveness live with a massive weight that they don't have to carry. But there's a way to be free of that weight and it's only at the cross. John says that the Holy Spirit's the one who does this convicting. He's the one that shows people that those, those categories are false. But he does that by empowering you as Jesus' witnesses. The Holy Spirit doesn't have billboards, doesn't use billboards. He uses you. You're the walking and talking testimony of how God saves sinners. I think one thing that Christians in our, our context in particular sometimes can wrestle with is wondering, um, where is the evidence of the helper at work? Where's the evidence of the Holy Spirit? Maybe you've wondered this. Why don't I feel the Holy Spirit in my life? Where's the helper? Now, if that's the case, if, if, if you wonder that, there's a couple things to keep in mind here. First, Jesus promises here to send the helper. He promises. And Jesus does not break promises. So that means the helper's with you right now. Whether you feel it or not, the helper is with you. But that question's a good one. If you don't feel the helper's help, it might be that you aren't doing the things that he came to help you do. Right, there, there's, a, there's a certain mystical quality to the Holy Spirit since we can't see him, but we know that he's present and changing us to be more like Jesus. But there's also this very practical quality of the Holy Spirit that he is here to help you do things. He's here to help you do things. He's not primarily here to give you emotional experiences. He's here to help you bear witness about what Jesus has done in your life. So if you aren't bearing witness to Jesus' work in your life in any real, consistent way, you probably aren't going to sense his help in the same way. He's here to help us carry on Jesus' mission. He's here to help us fight sin in our lives. And so if you want to know what his help is like, 
You have to get in the game. You have to get in the game of being a Christian. Pursuing uh, killing sin in your life. Showing, telling people about what Jesus has done for you. If you take those steps of faith, you're going to begin to sense what the helper's help feels like. This is part of what Paul means in Galatians 5 when he says that if we're walking by the Spirit, we have to keep in step with the Spirit. The helper's work in your life is active. And it has a direction, it has a purpose. That direction and that purpose is to transform you to be more and more like Jesus and to use you to continue Jesus' work of bringing good news to the world. So I encourage you to think about that. Is there someone that the helper might be prompting you to tell your faith to, 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 to bear witness about Jesus, to talk about with Jesus? It might be as simple as telling a coworker on Monday what you did today. Or it might be more serious than that. It might be sharing with someone how the Lord is, has specifically transformed your life. And it may be that the Spirit is preparing to use you to rescue someone from eternal damnation and bring them into eternal joy. Because that's what he does. And he uses us to do it. When that moment comes, when uh, you sense it's maybe the time to talk about Jesus with someone, maybe your heart starts racing, maybe you're like me, you begin to sweat a little bit, remember you have the helper with you. And you can take that step of faith knowing that he's going to give you the help that you need. I think this passage is a really, really helpful one for us. People in our context often don't think regularly about being hated for Jesus' sake. If you're like me, you probably don't think nearly enough about the Holy Spirit and the Helper's work in your life, what he's doing. But it's also encouraging, isn't it? This is encouraging. It helps, I think, that Jesus is giving us the warning that there's going to be friction if we're bearing witness about him. It's going to happen if we're talking about Jesus. But it helps to know that the helper is going to be with us. The helper is going to be with you. He's going to be ready to help you when you do start bearing witness about your Savior. And also, keep in mind, all these disciples that are hearing this right now, once again, they're about to run. They're about to run. So if you perhaps have sensed that maybe you don't have the courage you'd like, that is something to bring to the Lord. And he understands what that is like. He will forgive you, and he will help you to grow. All these men were going to be totally afraid, but then nearly all of them are going to die very public, very shameful deaths for the sake of Jesus not long after that. And the only way that you can make sense of that kind of transformation is to believe that this helper that Jesus is talking about is real, and he is here on earth, and he is here to help you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have not left us alone here on earth. We thank you that you know our weakness and you don't despise us for it, but instead you send the Holy Spirit to help us. So Father, we ask that you would help us to have courage to bear witness. I'm sure, Father, there are people here who feel nervous about this idea. For those here who may sense that you are calling them to begin talking about Jesus with someone, and I pray that you'd give them courage and confidence to know that the helper is real. And Jesus, we thank you that you chose to be rejected for our sake. You chose to show us that we are sinners in need of salvation. You 
chose to give your righteousness to all those who trust in your name. Thank you, Father. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.